Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this Lord's Day, as it's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4. <clears throat> Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. <clears throat> we have noted in past sermons that the supersessionist position maintains that there is no present or future purpose in prophetic scripture for Israel as a nation. Uh, all of those promises to Israel in the Old Testament according to the supersessionist position are fulfilled in the church uh, presently. Now in my judgment that's a position that swings wrongly to one extreme concerning Israel as a nation. On the other extreme, on the other hand, uh, is the dispensationalist position that maintains that there is a future purpose in prophetic scripture for Israel as a nation. But that position also includes the rebuilding of the temple, the reinstitution of the priesthood, sacrifices, feasts, and ceremonies of the Old Testament. And in my judgment, that swings uh, again wrongly to the opposite extreme concerning Israel as a nation. However, the covenantalist position maintains that there is a future purpose in prophetic scripture for Israel as a nation. First, all Israel shall be saved. First, Israel shall be converted to the Lord Jesus Christ and be brought into the visible church with all of the nations at that time in the future. And then there will be a restoration of the land of Israel uh, to the nation of Israel in peace and in safety, not as it is now. No peace, no safety. But that does not include a return to the Old Testament church by way of rebuilding the temple, reinstituting the priesthood, the sacrifices, the feasts, the ceremonies of the Old Testament. But rather, Israel will be regrafted into that olive tree from which she was broken off. She will be grafted or regrafted into the new covenant church of Jesus Christ. You see, Israel presently, according again, you 
following the covenantalist position, Israel is presently a covenant breaking uh, and Christ rejecting nation. That is, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, is God's enemy presently. But there is coming a time in the future, a glorious time, when the fullness of the Gentile nations will be brought in and all Israel as a nation shall be saved. In Romans 11, verses 25 through 26. That is the position, I believe, that we have sought to maintain as most consistent with biblical revelation. Last Lord's Day, we began to consider scriptures in which it is claimed that uh, a future temple will be uh, rebuilt uh, in the land of Israel in Jerusalem. And it will have, according to uh, those who claim such passages of scripture, they claim it will have God's blessing and God's approval. And we've sought to demonstrate that that's not the case. We considered a couple Old Testament passages last Lord's Day. We continue with some passages this Lord's Day. Those three passages we're going to briefly look at are these. First, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Secondly, Daniel 9, verse 24. And thirdly, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. It's a lot to try to accomplish uh, in a relatively short period of time. I, I have preached in the past on all of these texts, uh, not the, necessarily the recent past, although Daniel is fair, fairly recent, uh, and we are going to get back to Daniel to finish uh, Daniel, um, but uh, we've taken this particular hiatus just to be able to address things related to Israel. But uh, if you want more detail with regard to um, these texts, uh, you can look uh, at past sermons. If you can't find what you're looking for, simply ask me and I'll direct you to a greater detail on some of these passages. So these are just going to be basically overviews of these passages, but with the intent to show that where a temple is mentioned in these passages that is not referring to a rebuilt temple in the future that has God's approval and has God's blessing. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, once again, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. <clears throat> First, a little background about this book, Second Thessalonians, as well as uh, particularly this chapter, chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul <clears throat> had penned in uh, the first letter to the Thessalonians 
in chapter 4, verse 17, these words, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, when he says we which are alive, it appears that some had in the church of Thessalonica had taken that to mean that Christ's coming uh, was going to happen within their lifetime uh, at that time. That is, coming was near. And uh, the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians, the second epistle, in order to correct that misunderstanding, uh, in order to show that there were certain events in history that must first occur and first come to pass. Some dispensationalists uh, today yet maintain uh, this position that Christ's coming could happen at any time. Uh, it is imminent. And yet Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in order to show that that's not the case, that there are events in history that must come to pass, that must be ended before uh, Christ's second coming. Paul writes 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for these uh, three reasons. First, because he doesn't want anyone to think Jesus failed to keep his promise that he would come at his appointed time. Second reason uh, for this chapter is because uh, Paul does not want Christians to be unprepared, thinking that Christ could come at any moment when there are times of suffering, when there are times of tribulation that are to come upon the church. He wants them to be prepared. He wants them to, uh, to thirdly, he wants them to persevere uh, through what is to come in awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what were some of the events that Paul prophesied must first come to pass before the coming of the Lord? In order to get to the issue of the temple, we do have to uh, do a little bit more um, exposition of the text, but we will get to um, that in just a moment, uh, the issue of the temple and what uh, that refers to. But the first event that uh, the Apostle Paul mentions must come to pass before the coming of the Lord is uh, a falling away. A falling away in verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come. A falling away first. This is uh, the Greek word apostasia. Apostasy the English word apostasy. You see, apostasy uh, does not speak of uh, those who deny God, atheists. Uh, they've not fallen away from, from uh, having been a part of the church, uh, been in the church, in the faithful church, and fallen away from that. Atheists, again, uh, uh, unless they started off there. Uh, but uh, nor does it refer to those in false religions, uh, pagans. Uh, they've not apostatized. Uh, they have grown up, if they've grown up within false religions, they've, they've not apostatized. They are um, 
within those false religions. They've been within those false religions. Apostasy refers to those who have been uh, within the faithful church and have fallen away from the faithful church. Uh, it refers to those who have known the truth and have fallen away from that biblical truth which they have received. That's what an apostate is. That's what apostasy is. They've fallen away from that faithful church in doctrine, worship, and church government. This here, this falling away that the Apostle Paul mentions must come first before Christ comes, is the great apostasy that occurred when the church of Rome fell away from biblical doctrines. It denied sola scriptura, scripture alone, as being the alone infallible rule of faith and practice. Uh, when it fell away from justification by faith alone and added works to justification, when it fell away from the once and for all time sacrifice of Jesus Christ and introduced the mass as a re-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, when it fell away from the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ, and introduced a mediatrix, Mary, when it introduced various saints, uh, as intercessors, as those to whom one can go uh, in mediation. When it fell away from purity of worship and introduced all manner of corruption uh, in worship. And when it introduced a denial of the one in, uh, of the, the soul's headship of Jesus Christ as king over his church. Over his church, not only in heaven, but his church here upon the earth. The only king, the only head of the church of Jesus Christ. These denials that we've just mentioned were what Protestants protested against. These denials were what the Reformed Church sought to reform and to return to the faithful church. So this falling away from the faithful church, we are also told in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, will be led by the man of sin and the son of of perdition. You see in scripture a warring man is called a man of war. A bloody man is called a man of blood. A deceitful man is called a man of deceit. And a man that greatly transgresses God's word, God's commandments, and requires those in the church that has fallen away to likewise follow him and to do the same is called the man of sin. The man of sin. 
He's also identified as the son of perdition, that is, the son of destruction. And this destruction is eternal destruction. Interestingly, only one other man in all of Scripture is identified as the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot. In John 17, 12, Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. Why? Well, just as Judas was an imposter in the church, so is the papacy. Just as Judas betrayed Christ with a kiss, so does the papacy. Just as Judas was the son of perdition, inheriting everlasting destruction, so is the papacy. The papacy here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is the leader of that apostasy from the faithful church of Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, section 6, says this. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church. We'll come back to that phrase, in the church. That exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. That's basically summarizing, again, what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 say. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, it doesn't say that he seats himself in the church. It says he seats himself in the temple of God. But very clearly, the Westminster Confession of Faith, represented by, by the, the kingdoms and the churches of England, Ireland, and Scotland, and in all of the Reformed nations, likewise held the same view of this particular passage that the temple here referred to. Uh, is the church in which the papacy sets up a seat and proclaims uh, himself uh, to be like God, proclaims uh, himself to be head of the church, usurps the authority and the office and the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. The man of sin and son of perdition as we see in verse 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, is further described in that he, as we just noted, he usurps the titles, he usurps the authority of God. This is certainly true of the papacy, who claims to be the head of the visible church on earth. When Jesus Christ claims to be the head of his church here upon the earth. Not only upon his church in heaven, but his church here upon the earth as well. For example, in Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church. 
Colossians 1.18, and he, that is Jesus Christ, is head of one body, the church. This includes not only his church in heaven, but his church on earth as well. Furthermore, the papacy, in uh, connection with what we've just read in verses 3 and 4, the papacy also claims an infallibility that is godlike, an infallibility when speaking in his official capacity. It also claims the power to forgive sins, which God alone claims that he has the power to forgive sins. It's interesting that the papacy claims and assumes the, the title Vicar of Christ, which in Latin means in place of Christ. But that is the very meaning of antichrist in Greek. Not Latin, but in Greek. Antichrist means in place of Christ. Here, again, we see by the very title that, that the... Um, the papacy assumes that they have identified themselves, placed the target very clearly upon themselves as being the one that is spoken of here in Second Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4. Anti, the Greek preposition anti, can mean against or opposed to, but I would submit to you that Antichrist is opposed to Christ, against Christ, because he usurps. He usurps and takes the place of Christ. And that's how he is opposed to Christ. Anyone who would take the place of Christ is clearly opposed to Christ, against Christ, not for Jesus Christ. But note now, we finally get to, to the point, Note where the papacy sits and reigns in the temple of God. Verse 4. Is this a rebuilt temple in the future as claimed by dispensationalists? Well, the historic Protestant position has been that this is the temple here referred to, is the church, the visible church of Christ upon earth over which the papacy has usurped the place of Jesus Christ in sitting as king, as head, in the place of King Jesus. And we last week looked at some of these passages. I won't repeat and go through all of them, but let me read this one and then I'll just cite the references to these other passages that speak of the church being the temple of God. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the glory that God displayed in the tabernacle and in the temple, he says, is displayed in his church, his visible church here upon the earth, and no doubt in his church in heaven, but we as well. As he dwells in our midst, as he walks among, among us, his glory is displayed among us. 
<clears throat> I would also refer you to, and you can look these up um, at your leisure, but 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 17, Ephesians 2, 21, 1 Timothy 3.15 and 1 Peter 2.5. In some of these references, it uses the phrase house of God instead of temple of God, but house of God there is referring to the temple of God. Um, those, as you look up house of God throughout the Old Testament, the house of God was the temple of God. And so whether it uses the phrase temple of God or house of God, it's referring to uh, to the temple of God and in New Testament language or meaning it refers to the church of Jesus Christ. The Geneva Notes <clears throat> published uh, in 1560 embraced by um, Protestants or, and those who were reformed throughout uh, the continent and the, the British Isles at that time uh, says this concerning Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 says he that is Paul foretells that the Antichrist that is whoever he is that will occupy that seat that falls away from God will not reign outside of the church but in the very bosom of the church so he interprets again the Geneva notes uh, interpret that as well as basically any reformed um, uh, commentator, divine, the First Reformation, Second Reformation, uh, would uh, likewise take the same view. We've already seen in the Westminster Confession of Faith that it speaks, it doesn't use in the temple of God is where the Antichrist will take his seat, but in the church. It's, it's actually just replaced the temple of God in the church of God. So this interpretation, I believe, best accords with the nature of what the falling away is. It's a spiritual falling away in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. It's an apostasy from the faithful church, yet claiming to be the visible church or temple of God here upon earth. And that is where uh, this uh, antichrist, this man of sin, this son of perdition, will take up his seat uh, in... Uh, that professing visible church, not the faithful church, but a, 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 a church nevertheless, one that claims to be, professes to be uh, the church here upon the earth. So again, we can move, I, uh, as I said, you can do more research and study that, um, that I've given in past sermons on that text, but I think we'll move on, as I said, to consider another passage of scripture uh, that is used uh, in Daniel 9.24, and again, I won't spend much time here because we've already, in our series on Daniel, we've gone through this particular verse and, and verses around it in great detail. <clears throat> Daniel 9.24 says this, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins 
and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That's where, again, dispensationalists will say this is a future uh, event that has not been yet realized and fulfilled the anointing of the temple, the most holy. So one of the prophesied events uh, in this passage that shall be accomplished, there are six events that are mentioned here in verse 24 that I just read. <clears throat> the last of those events that will be realized is to anoint the most holy. Literally, the holy of holies. To anoint the holy of holies. The time period in which, and this is very crucial in understanding when this uh, was fulfilled, I believe, in the past already. The time period uh, given is 70 weeks, um, and this is following the, the year-day principle that every day equals a year. Um, prophetically, uh, one day equals one actual year, so there were actually 70 times 7, talking about 490 years. Uh, that are in view here, counting from uh, the date of 458 to 457, when the decree went out um, uh, to uh, rebuild the temple and, uh, and Jerusalem. So beginning at 458 to 457 BC, stretching 490 years to 34 to 35 AD. That's the period of time that we're talking about when we talk about 490 years. So is this the anointing of a future temple to be built and blessed by the Lord or is this the anointing of the holy temple, the Lord Jesus Christ? Daniel's prophecy and again with regard to how we account these years this is very important as well. Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks, or 490 years, uh, are years that follow consecutively, one after another, until the, the last year, the, the 490th year is finally realized. There are not any breaks mentioned, uh, any pauses, in the years that are articulated there. The 70 weeks of Daniel uh, are, are based upon, and earlier in Daniel chapter 9, you see uh, that it is about time for Israel to uh, be allowed to leave their captivity in Babylon and to return to uh, Judah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and it says that the 70 years were about to expire 70 years those are again not prophetic years those are actual years but the point I would make is that there are no breaks there are no pauses in those 70 years that they continue one year after the other um, and if that's used earlier in the same chapter, we, I believe, have every reason to believe that 
the 490 years, the 70 weeks of Daniel will likewise follow consecutively one after another. But uh, in the dispensationalist interpretation of this, there is a break between the 69th week and the 70th week. Uh, the 69th week brought us, uh, according to their interpretation, either to uh, the baptism of John or to uh, Jesus riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. But then at that particular point, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, now 2,000 years have elapsed before we get to the 70th week. And so these six items that are mentioned, uh, these events that are to be realized and fulfilled in Daniel 9.24, are all pushed into the future, into the 70th week. We have no reason from the text to believe that there is that type of a break, an interruption, or a pause at all. And I would say especially, why would, we, why would God pause and not include in the 70 weeks the most important events in all of history, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those are included in the 70 weeks of Daniel. And yet again, the dispensational interpretation uh, does not include them there, but pushes them uh, into the future where the 70th week, the last seven years, have not yet been realized. And so because of that view of Daniel 9.24, when it mentions as the last event to be realized there to anoint the most holy, they would then understand that that is the temple that will be rebuilt uh, yet in the future in the last uh, 70, seven year, the last seven years of the 490 years, the last week of the 70 weeks of Daniel, yet in the future. <clears throat> now, we, now that we have the right time frame, um, I, what is the anointing here of the Most Holy? Well, Jesus... If we're going to allow, again, um, Scripture to interpret Scripture for us and not impose our own view, but if the New Testament speaks very clearly to a particular issue, we certainly want to understand how did Jesus, how did the apostles understand uh, a passage like this? Well, Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as God's temple himself. He's referred to as God's temple. He says uh, in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, referring to his death and his resurrection. In John 1.14, <clears throat> we read in the word, meaning Christ, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt is the word tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. 
He was God's tabernacle among us. He was God's temple among us. And we beheld his glory, John says. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But emanated from him, just as in the temple of the Old Testament was the glory of God, so the glory of God emanated from Jesus, who is the tabernacle and who is the temple, according to John. In chapter 1, verse 14. Then we find uh, the apostle uh, Peter saying in Acts, Acts 3.14, speaking to the Jews, but you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And so here, just as this is the most holy, Jesus is called here the Holy One. Uh, he was the one anointed even by the Lord Jesus, or by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the Lord uh, was indeed anointed, when it says to anoint the most holy, uh, the Lord Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism as the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. We find in Acts 10, verses 37 through 38, this is Peter speaking to those gathered in the home of Cornelius. That word, or the, in other words, the gospel of Christ, I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began after Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, notice, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. In fact, Jesus in Luke 4, 18, says about himself, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised. And the disciples, after enduring uh, a time of examination and then beating, uh, scourging, at the hands of the Sanhedrin, they gather together and they offer a prayer to the Lord. And they include in their prayer what we find in Acts 4.27. For of a truth against thy holy, notice again, holy, this is to anoint the most holy, but we keep finding that Jesus is the holy one. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. <clears throat> Dear ones, if, if a temple of stone <clears throat> in the Old Testament uh, was called holy, 
how much more is the true temple, the everlasting temple? Because Revelation 21 says there's no temple in the new heaven and earth because God and the Lamb are the temple. How much more is Jesus a holy temple over a temple of stone? How much more was he anointed with the Holy Spirit than the temple of the Old Testament anointed with mere oil? You see, the temple, as we noted last Lord's Day, the temple, the priesthood, the altar, the sacrifices, all of those are connected to take out one of those to take out, for example, the priesthood, removes the temple, removes the sacrifices. To take out the sacrifices, removes the temple, removes the priesthood. To take out the temple, removes the priesthood, the sacrifices, the feasts, and all of the other ceremonies. They are all connected one to another. They stand together, they all fall together because they were all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the temple is gone. And when in the New Covenant we understand that it's gone, the Lord doesn't mean that it's going to be rebuilt. Hebrews 9, verses 9 through 10. Which, that is the tabernacle, the temple in the Old Testament, which was a figure, notice, for the time then present. It was for the time then present. Not for us, not for the future, but for the time then present. There is made a necessity, uh, I'm sorry, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them, notice, until the time of reformation. When is the time of reformation? When Jesus Christ comes and fulfills all of those ordinances, then the temple is passed away. It's not going to be re rebuilt. Likewise, the priesthood has passed away and not to be reinstituted in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 12, and then verses 17 and 18. For the priesthood being changed, being changed from the priesthood of Aaron to the priesthood of Melchizedek under Christ, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So the law has changed with regard to the priesthood. No longer any priests that come from Aaron or Levi because Jesus Christ is the new priest of the order of Melchizedek, according to Hebrews 7. In verses 17 and 18 we read, for he that is God testifieth, thou art a priest, speaking to Jesus, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
For there is verily, notice, a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. What was unprofitable, what was weak? The Aaronic and the Levitical priesthood. And it's been replaced by the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives forever, who doesn't have to make sacrifices for himself before he offers sacrifices for others. Whoever lives to make intercession for us, whose death has put, uh, in, uh, put away the guilt and the punishment of sin for his people forever. And then, what about sacrifices? Those have also ended in Hebrews 10, verses 8 through 9. Above when he, that is the Lord Jesus, said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings, an offering for sin thou wouldest not. In other words, God did not desire those sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, to continue. Thou desirest or wouldest not. Neither hadst pleasure in them or therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, that is Jesus, said, Lo, I am come to do thy will, O God. And then Paul says in Hebrews 10, 9, He taketh away the first. Those Old Testament sacrifices. He take away, taketh away the first that he may establish the second. That is his sacrifice once and for all. He's taken away all of those Old Testament sacrifices. So, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices are all fulfilled and realized in the Lord Jesus. Therefore, they cannot be reinstituted. A temple cannot be rebuilt in the future based upon what the, the inspired word of God teaches us here. To return to a rebuilt temple would be to return to the old covenant after Jesus has instituted the new covenant. You see, that's precisely what Paul warned Jewish Christians against in the letter to the Hebrews. Returning to the temple. He said, don't return to the temple. Don't return to those ordinances. Because if you do so, you're leaving Christ behind. You're leaving the Lord Jesus behind. And as we noted, Jesus was indeed anointed, anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. The very words Messiah in Daniel 9.25 <clears throat> Just after verse 24 says, and to anoint the most holy. <clears throat> then in verse 25, know therefore and understand that from going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild or to, uh, to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince. Messiah means anointed one. Uh, he is the one who was anointed in verse 24 to anoint uh, the most holy. The same, uh, one's a verb and one's a noun, but it's based upon the same Hebrew word, to anoint the most holy. 
And here in verse 25, we're told that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. Just as the Greek word Christ means the same thing, the anointed one. And so this is, this is who this prophecy in, in Daniel chapter 9 is all about. It's about Jesus, about his fulfillment and realization uh, in those 70 weeks to fulfill all those six events that are mentioned in verse 24, which includes to anoint the most holy as he was the most holy, as he was the holy of holies that was anointed, the temple of God in whom the glory of God above any other glory dwelt. And then finally in Revelations chapter 11, so again, from these passages, there is no rebuilt temple to be looked for in the future. Revelation chapter 11, verses one through two. There we read, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall, be, shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. <clears throat> Last uh, Lord's Day, as we considered uh, the temple that is displayed in vision form there in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, we also considered some matters, prophecies that are found in Revelation as well. And at that time, we noted that Revelation is full of symbols including uh, using old covenant objects as symbols uh, of new covenant truths. For example, in Revelation, an altar uh, is used more than once. Uh, offerings of incense, priests, the Ark of the Covenant, and yes, a temple is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Very symbolic book. Is this referring again to uh, a rebuilt temple in the future uh, for the Jews? Or is this referring to this temple that is spoken of here in, in Revelation 11 verses 1 through 2? Is this in using symbols referring to the church. Again, as I said, there are sermons on this particular passage. If you want to do more study on this passage, again, this is a brief overview. In these two verses, there are clearly two parts to this vision. First part in verse 1 says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. This uh, represents <clears throat> those who are true saints. This represents those who as faithful 
priests worship at the appointed altar by way of pure worship appointed by the Lord uh, in his word. Uh, these represent within this holy sanctuary, represent the invisible church of God, God's elect, uh, God's redeemed, who worship him in spirit and in truth. They are measured with this reed uh, that is given to John. Uh, that reed is like a ruler. Uh, it signifies that they are measured by the gospel. They're measured by uh, the commandments of God. Uh, they are found to be faithful uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are found to be faithful uh, in walking in accordance with his commandments, according to this reed by which they are measured. It's very similar uh, to Revelation 7, where we find the 144,000 have their heads sealed, their foreheads sealed to mark them off. So likewise, with this reed that is measured, it marks them off as being God's true people. In the second part, we mentioned there are two parts to this vision. The second part, in verse 2, but the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. In the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. This represents those who are in the outer court of the temple and the, the visible church, but have given themselves over to corruption, given themselves over to the practices of the nations, given themselves over to the Antichrist uh, that we have already considered in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. They have fallen away, in other words. They've apostatized. They're not those who worship within the the sanctuary uh, within uh, among those who worship the Lord as he has authorized and commanded they have fallen away they are worshiping according to their own ideas their own innovations their own institutions they have fallen away from the gospel of Christ and from his commandments so this is again they're not to be measured they're told, John is told, don't measure them. Don't set them apart as being my people. But rather, leave the outer court, leave them out. Literally, cast them out. It's the same word that's used uh, in the New Testament for excommunication. Cast them out. They are excommunicated from the faithful church. Uh, they are not to be measured. Again, I submit to you that this is not a novel interpretation on my part. This is, again, the interpretation, uh, the historic Protestant and Reformed interpretation of these verses. Um, Matthew Poole, uh, who lived from 1624 to 1679, uh, a very godly, learned commentator, minister. He states this uh, on this passage in Revelation chapter 11. He says this, 
This temple was a type of the church under the New Testament. First Corinthians 3.17, 2 Corinthians 6.16, and is so to be interpreted generally in this book where the temple occurs other places in the book of Revelation. For the material temple at Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans more than 25 years before this prophecy, never to be built more. Not one stone was left upon another so that John here was bid to measure the church. The church. <clears throat> I ask you if this is a temple of stone, how do you excommunicate uh, that which is material in nature, like stone? How do you excommunicate the stones, the outer court uh, of the temple? It says, cast the outer court, cast them out. Uh, this is, again, not to be interpreted as a temple of, of stone. This is to be interpreted as a temple consisting of living stones. A temple uh, of the faithful church of Jesus Christ, united to Christ, who is the chief cornerstone of the temple. You see, this represents, this outer court represents people that have fallen away and that are cast out of the temple, like we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-4, through 4, fallen away and cast out of the temple and represented by this outer court, those that follow the papal antichrist. Once again, the use of temple to represent the church is found in many places, as we've already noted, many places in the New Testament and is the historic Protestant and Reformed interpretation of these verses. And so once again, I submit there is no rebuilt temple in view here either. So as we close, I, I do have some application for us to consider. <clears throat> Deception is terrible. Deception is dangerous. But in some ways, self-deception is even worse than being deceived, deceiving ourselves. Listen to the deception, to the self-deception associated here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with those who fall away. 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. And then shall that wicked, that wicked one, in other words, be revealed, referring to the man of sin, to the son of perdition, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. They're self-deceived. They've been deceived by the enemy, but they are self-deceived. Because, notice the reason why they're deceived, why they're self-deceived, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned 
who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Where does self-deception begin in our lives? And I want to make it clear, I believe that none of us are purely undeceived in every possible way that we all, in various ways, even as Christians, have those blind spots uh, in our lives. But where does self-deception begin in our lives? It begins with believing a lie. Believing a lie. And then, not only believing a lie, but in practicing a lie. And then, taking pleasure in it. In the lie. So we believe a lie, we practice a lie, we take pleasure in the lie. In other words, self-deception involves us living two different lives. It involves us hiding the truth from those who love us, from parents, from close Christian friends, from those within the church. Self-deception, dear ones, begins when we break God's good and holy commandments and act as though the Lord does not see or that the Lord does not care, that we've gotten away with it. That's where self-deception begins, when we think that way. You see, honesty and transparency with God, with our spouses, with our family, with our brethren, is so necessary in order to overcome self-deception to which we're all susceptible. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. None of us are beyond being self-deceived. Consider the consequences of self-deception in the verses that we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. It ultimately leads in its most extreme form to damnation. To damnation. Being sentenced forever to the lake of fire. That's why, again, these are words that are so sobering to, uh, unto us. They are warnings to us. Even if we are indeed God's elect, God intends for them, for these words to be a warning to us. Because again, even if we do not go to the full extent of self-deception, do we want any self-deception? Should we want any self-deception? living and reigning, or having some place in our lives. In this particular passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 8 through 12, God at some point 
gave them over to their self-deception because they did not love the truth of God. But rather they loved lies. They loved the pleasures of those lies more than they loved the truth of God. And when we do so, there is a darkness, there is a, uh, a blindness that develops in our minds and in our heart and in our affections and in our thinking with regard to the truth. When we ignore it, when we ne neglect the truth, when we disobey the truth, we are very, very susceptible at that point to self-deception. Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we do not the truth. We can't walk in the light, dear ones, of God's truth and righteousness and yet walk at the same time in darkness. Uh, we are again being deceived if we think we can have one foot in darkness and one foot in the light at the same time. That's exactly what the enemy wants us to think. We can't. We are deceiving ourselves. We are lying to ourselves, if that is the case. You see, self-deception doesn't usually begin with big, major types of, of sins. It usually begins with small, what we call small lies. I put that in quotes. Uh, really, no lie is in itself small because any lie, again, is contrary to the truth of God. Self-deception begins with small, what we term small lies, or stealing small things, or cheating in little ways, we say. And because we have put it into that category, it grows because we haven't attended to it. We haven't dealt with it. We haven't gone to the Lord to repent and to seek his forgiveness. And so it grows. It grows. That self-deception grows if it is not taken seriously by means of God's grace. That's why David prays in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Is that not transparency and honesty before God? That's a heart that is not going to be easily self-deceived that prays that way and means it and walks Accordingly, dear ones, understand self-deception does not want the light. Self-deception wants that little bit of darkness. Self-deception doesn't want accountability. Doesn't want accountability to God. Doesn't want accountability to anyone else. In fact, 
Self-deception runs from accountability rather than running to it. When we do not want to be accountable to those whom God has placed over us, to those who are cherished brethren, we do not want to have any accountability. We want to do just our own thing. It's an indication that self-deception has taken root in our lives. The good news is that we do not have to live a life of self-deception that leads to destruction. John, 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all unrighteousness. If we walk in the light, if we are honest, if we are transparent and desiring to walk in his truth and in his righteousness, walking in the light, then we don't deceive one another. We have fellowship one with another. The gospel of Jesus Christ, dear ones, and the power of his Holy Spirit will give us the strength to lead and to live a life of honesty, transparency, and integrity and seeking to practice what we profess with our lips will lead us to take all of those inconsistencies in our lives, which we all have inconsistencies in our lives, will lead us to take all of those inconsistencies or we might call them hypocrisies, even if we're not a hypocrite because we are striving to overcome those hypocrisies in our lives, will lead us to take all of those inconsistencies and hypocrisies seriously in our lives and to live each day in the presence of God who sees all and knows all. You see, that truth that God sees all and knows all, that scares the unbeliever to death. But it is the greatest comfort to the one who truly believes in Jesus Christ to know that him that he who loves us most everlastingly, infinitely, he who loves us most is the very one who knows most about us, knows us inside and out. We can't deceive him. We might think we can, we might try to, we cannot deceive God. If we would be honest and transparent with others, we must begin by being honest and transparent with God. And when we are truly honest and transparent with God, we will learn to be honest and transparent with one another. There will be nothing to hide. We will live the same life, whether we are alone before a computer uh, or out on our own uh, without uh, anyone looking over our shoulder. We'll live that same life in that situation as we do when we are in the very presence of one another. We live the same life. You see, God gives to all true believers a love for his truth, a love for his truth, and an earnest desire to walk in it, not to walk in lies, just because lies are pleasurable. Eve 
thought that the lie of Satan would bring her pleasure. It brought death. It brought death. And when we're walking in the truth, that means we're walking in repentance. None of us are sinless. To walk in the truth and righteousness of God's light means we walk in repentance. Where we fail, and we all will, we come before the Lord in honesty, transparency, and we confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dear ones, as I close, this is the way of blessing in life, to walk in the light as he is in the light. The way of self-deception is the way of misery and destruction. That's what's set before you today. Life, destruction, blessing or misery. Please, please choose life. Choose blessing, not self-deception, which leads to misery and destruction. Please stand with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy holy word, for Thy truth, the light that Thou hast shed upon us. Lord, we, we know that we have failed Thee. We know that we have, in various ways, deceived ourselves, but God, may it be the earnest desire of our hearts that we do not want to be deceived by others or to deceive ourselves. We want to love thy truth. We want to walk in thy truth and in thy righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray, work within our lives by grace. Uh, may we, are, as thy people, uh, be those who choose life, who choose blessing over misery and destruction. For we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.